Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Hello, my name is Neil Selwyn and in this episode of Meet the Education Researcher, we're talking philosophy. In particular, we're going to reflect on the work of John Dewey, one of the most looked-to thinkers in education research and general debates about education. Over 100 years after his landmark books on education, the American philosopher is still frequently referred to across all areas of education research as a touchstone for what modern, humane and progressive education should look like. So I sat down with Dr Jennifer Bleasby from Monash University to learn more about Dewey's work. Jennifer is an educational philosopher who's written extensively about Dewey and education, so she's the ideal guide to this very prolific and wide-ranging thinker. So first off, why are we still talking about John Dewey in 2019? So Dewey's very influential today, and he was... uh a lot of the stuff he wrote about was sort of very ahead of his time and he he wrote it on just about every topic. And because he was writing a lot about things like the impact of industrialisation and technological advancement on the society he was living in and on what that meant for schools, a lot of it sounds very similar to what people are writing about today and the same sorts of concerns people have about living in a rapidly changing environment and about constant change and movement and how we deal with that and how schools need to respond to that. And so some of it sounds like it's somebody writing today if you didn't actually know it was somebody yeah, talking in 1900. Or- as you say, he was born in the 1850s. I mean, before we get going, can you tell us just a little bit about Dewey the man? I mean, who was he? What was his background? He's an American philosopher. He was born in uh, the New England region of America. He was briefly a teacher for about two or three years. And he actually didn't, he didn't like teaching. He didn't think he was particularly good at it. So he became a philosopher of education. As we all do, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, and then so he did a PhD after that early in his career so after teaching and not being particularly good at it, he went and did a PhD at John Hopkins. Um, and he, early in his career, he was an idealist philosopher. So all the early works, not what he's known for. So if you get the collected works, the early stuff's quite different. It's all sort of idealism. He wrote his PhD on Kant and psychology. That thesis is lost, so we don't know exactly right. what it said. And he was a Hegelian idealist. Like He spent 10 years at the University of Michigan, and then he went to the University of Chicago, and then everything changes. And that's where pragmatism the philosophy he's known for is, is most associated with uh, with the University of Chicago. You got in with that group, the classical pragmatists, and then and then you get the pragmatist philosophy he's known for from all through the middle to the later part of his career. After the University of Chicago, he went to Teachers College in New York and was there for a, a very long time. Well, sure. When he was at Chicago, he set his own schools up? Well, the job offer at Chicago came with a, a request that he come and set up a school that's called the Laboratory School, and it's still there at the University of Chicago. It's called the laboratory school because um, he said it's where we can teach our, we can we can test our educational ideas and ideals about how our political and our social system should be um, because that's closely connected to school connected to schooling. We can test our philosophical theories within this school, um, and so we actually have a very good idea about what Dewey's philosophy of education looked like in practice because the school ran, and it, and it was an example of it. And people have written books about. I mean, there's a lesson there for all of us in terms of what you can do as an education researcher. Building a school is certainly probably more more of an output than I'll ever have in my life. As you say, he's known for education, but you also talked about the the, the pragmatist philosophy that he's also associated yeah. with. I mean, what's the key arguments and the key underpinnings of pragmatism? Pragmatism is the only um, philosophical tradition to originate in America. It's really only the the only American philosophy. And he's one of the original classical pragmatists. So the other ones are Charles Peirce, William James, very famous psychologist, uh, well-known sociologist, George Herbert Mead. 
and other people who are on the margins of that sort of group, like Nobel Prize winner Jane Addams, W.E.B. Dubois, who's very popular today. So it's part of that group of classical pragmatists. The thing they're most famous for, so there is a pragmatist theory of everything in philosophy. The thing they're famous for is, I guess, the pragmatic theory of truth, the pragmatic maxim, which Charles Peirce originated, and then Dewey developed it and applied it to education um, and politics and stuff, which is pretty much what the name says, which is the pragmatism is that what makes something true, what they're really concerned about meaningful, an idea is true or meaningful, is depends on the um, implications of it when you apply it. How useful is it at solving problems? Um, it's a response to other dominant theories of truth in philosophy, especially the correspondence theory of truth, which is something's true if it corresponds to the real world. The problem with that is we're kind of we're stuck in our own minds. How do we ever get out to see that our things in our mind correspond? So they've never been able to <laughs> sort of overcome that. Pragmatic theory of truth is like, that's not actually important. What's important is, does it work? Does it work to solve the problem we're trying to solve? And that had implications for all sorts of other things. And basically, the key idea behind it is that um, how we develop truth and knowledge is through a, a community of inquiry. And the community of inquiry is the thing that's, I think, most important for education. And also brings in this importance of democracy. Yeah. So, I mean, what was Dewey's kind of flavour of democracy? Because, I mean, lots of people talk about democracy. Yeah, so it wasn't so much about a, a system of government. He says it's about a way of living. It's an associated. It's a. It's a way of associating with people. It's a type of community. Um. So it's everything we. It's about how everything we do in our lives, not just about government. Um. So demo- a democracy is a type of community. So he has a bunch of principles. It's the type of community that fosters communal inquiry. <laughs> so, Perfect. <laughs> so whatever type of community or social arrangement best fosters communal inquiry is a democracy. And so there's certain principles that must meet. So it can't be authoritarian. It can't shut down communication. You have to have open lines of communication, a free exchange of ideas between people from different backgrounds. Different communities need to interact with each other. So it seems to support something like globalisation, but only if it operates in particular um, ways. Um, so he was really opposed to things like uh, closed religious communities. Stuff so, like I mean, these are quite radical ideas to be bringing to education. So yeah. I'm really interested in terms of Jewish core thinking about education. I'm thinking about schools, teachers, students. I mean, I guess he, he has a lot to say on these issues. So um, his most famous book is Democracy in Education, which is a key book written in 1916, um, one of the most important books in educational theory. Um, and he saw the school as an embryonic democracy. So the school should operate the way we want society to operate on the whole. And then children get used to living within a little democracy and learn all the skills and dispositions you need um, to be part of a democratic community. He's really a really famous quote from the end of Democracy in Education where he says, the aims of education is growth. And that's also the means of education. <laughs> People quote it a lot. And it's that's the central idea to all these thinking on education. So he was really influenced by Darwin. And what he means by growth is just the ability to adapt to your environment and mm. adapt your environment well to survive and flourish. You have to be able to constantly adapt and um, make changes and solve problems. The capacity you need to do that is inquiry. In particular, it's communal inquiry because you live in the world with other people. So it's the capacity to engage in communal inquiry enables you to grow and flourish and survive. So the aim of schooling is just to teach you how to do that. It's to teach you communal inquiry because that's what you need to constantly adapt. It has no end because it's just to teach you how to be better at growing. And that's the point of schooling. But it's also how you learn. So it's also the means of schooling. That was what was happening in his school. He was teaching kids how to participate in communal inquiry. That's the central idea. So if I'm thinking back to progressive education, I'm trying to think how these ideas were put into practice during the 20th century. I don't know that his ideas were ever put into practice particularly well outside the Dewey School at the University of Chicago. 
And one of the problems with Dewey, and he knew it in his lifetime, was he was widely misunderstood and all sorts of ideas in progressive education were attributed to him that had nothing to do with him and some of which he hated. And he had some quote where he said, I'm more scared of my supporters than of my critics, you know, <laughs> because they were doing all these things. So one example is the project methods in schools. Yeah, and yeah. People think, oh, that's Dewey. You just give kids a project and you leave them alone. And they sort it out themselves. It's inquiry-based learning. That was a guy, William Kilpatrick, also at Teachers College, who actually invented the... <laughs> so a colleague of his. <laughs> Someone he knew, yeah. So a contemporary of his. But it wasn't his idea. And his idea of inquiry-based learning was much more rigorous and, and, and complex and really hard for teachers. So if I wanted to teach some specific sort of content or knowledge, say in science, what I would do is think of what's a problem in the real world where people use this knowledge? Like why was it invented in the first place? Why did scientists come up with this? What were they trying to solve or make sense of? And I get to give students some sort of problem like that, but something that makes sense to their age, that's yeah, age yeah. appropriate. And then once they've got that sort of problem and they work through it, they're going to have to learn those skills and knowledge the scientists developed and really understand it well and value it because they, they know how it's applied to the real um, world. That's what happened at the school. Kids would be working like in the primary school, they would run a whole shop in the school and the kids would operate the whole shop in doing so. They're learning literacy and numeracy skills about business skills, economics, all sorts of social roles, ethics, collaboration, all sorts of things. One of the things that's striking me here is the relationship between the teacher and the student. I mean, the final bit of the puzzle, I guess. What did Dewey have to say about that? The teacher's role then is it's similar to Vygotsky in a, in a lot of ways to that role of um, scaffolding students. So creating an environment which provokes communal inquiry but also provokes them to learn important content and knowledge um, and then facilitating that. So the, for the teacher, the work is huge for this inquiry-based learning. So it might look like they're not doing as much in the classroom, but the work that has to be done beforehand would be uh, complex, require, require huge creativity um, and intelligence to be able to develop these classrooms and these lessons in the first place. So once they're in the room, then I think the ch children and the teachers are co-inquirers. They're both members of this democratic community working together to solve problems. So it's a much more equal relationship, mm -hmm. not one of an expert who knows everything and a disciplinarian. And he was very critical of traditional schooling. They're working together and the teacher is probably going to know more, probably knows, predicts the answers to the problems they're solving but doesn't tell them they're helping the students to get there by themselves. And also has a desire to kind of investigate and acquire knowledge yes. and share knowledge and all of these That's things. That's right, yeah. And he talked about teaching as a social service. Yes. Which I think is a really interesting concept. Yeah, and it, but he thought even philosophy ought to be a social service as well and criticised philosophers for just writing sort of abstract, weird stuff that nobody else understood. And he lived his life like that too. So he was involved in all sorts of social movements. He was a huge public figure during his lifetime. Um, yes, teaching is a social service. They are, are public intellectuals who are tackling, it's very similar to critical pedagogy in some of these ways. And there's a lot of similarities between him and Freire. Um, through the work they do, teachers are reconstructing society because they're shaping children and they're creating its ideals of community and practice that then should flow out of the school and into the wider community. So, I mean, there's so much there. If we want to read further, I mean, apart from democracy and education, what would you say are the kind of key texts that we should be engaging with? So democracy and education is a good one to start with. For one, it's one of the easier ones to read. Dewey's very hard, especially if you don't have a background in philosophy. So very difficult to read. And Charles Peirce is even worse. That was one of the... He's very <laughs> important, but was not very influential because he's so hard to understand. How We Think is quite a good little book. It was also written, I think, to be accessible, which outlines his stages of inquiry. So it's very important for teachers if you want to implement inquiry-based learning in the classroom. You actually have to know what a whole inquiry process looks like, mm. what a kid's going to do. And how do I design activities for that? How he thinks a good book for that. And he outlines in quite a bit of detail. And 
connects it back to his own school. Um, books I really like is Human Nature and Conduct, which is one that explains very well about growth and what it means to interact with your environment properly um, and how the, the importance of developing good habits, but habits can all, that can be reconstructed. Yeah. And I really like this stuff. It's really important. Yeah, it brings up on the, the, the habit thing was really, habits really interesting. Really important, yeah. It's a word that we don't normally talk about. And if no, we do, I... no. And people have an issue. Like I've, I've just, I've got a um, journal article I'm writing and working on at the moment. And one of the reviewers said, why do you use the word moral habits and not moral values? And I said, oh, no, I didn't use one instead of the other. Values are types of habits. And it did say then. I said, values are types of habits. And he said, I, I like values better than the habits. Well, it's <laughs> partly because habits are associated with traditional schooling and uh, like character education and mm. stuff. So I think it's got just got a bad rep. Yeah. But in philosophy, I think Aristotle's the key person here who wrote a lot about the development of habits. And that's where Dewey and that get it from. And then William James wrote a lot about habits. For them... It, habits are just your, your values, your beliefs, yeah. your dispositions, your character traits. They're not set in stone. That's bad habits, right, if you can't change them. There's good habits, which are ones that you need them to survive because you can't think about every little thing you're going to do. You have to have automatic responses to things. Um, but if they stop working, then you need the capacity to reflect on them and, and reconstruct them. Yeah. But it's important for it's important for growth and it's basically what makes you who you are. You're a bundle of habits of sorts. It's, so we need to reclaim the word habit. Yeah, it's just got a bad <laughs> rep in education in particular. Yeah, it's got that kind so of unthinking yeah, connotation to right, it. That's right, that's thoughtlessness. And in a way that's correct, but they were developed through, through thoughtful processes and through repeated action they become automated. But you need those. Like everything you do mm. involves habits. You know, you just die if you didn't have habits. You couldn't go through an inquiry process to do every little thing. But if your habits become so stuck, that you're constantly making mistakes or they're no good and you yeah, can't change yeah. them, then that's a problem. Yeah, so. absolutely. And that's fascinating. I'm always <laughs> well aware of not being too Western-centric in all yeah. of this. I mean, how have Dewey's ideas travelled to, say, non-Anglophone yeah. parts of the world? Is he really an Anglophone phenomenon? He travelled really widely during his lifetime. Uh, he travelled to uh, – he spent two years in China. Uh, he travelled to Japan, Africa, but he spent two years in China and he lectured, gave hundreds of lectures that were often attended by thousands of people and the implications of that, that there were some key Chinese scholars who were important in education who were very influenced by, okay. by Dewey yeah, and integrated yeah. his ideas with Confucianism and, and um, other Chinese thought. So even today, there's a whole, there's quite a bit written about this Dewey in China stuff. I haven't looked at it too much. Mm. But even today, I'll get international students and they know Dewey, they, from China who know, they know Dewey well, they know Dewey better okay. than students. So he's still, my impression is that he's still quite influential. That legacy has lasted. Yeah, yeah. And so I think I kind of, it's a bit funny when people say to me, how can you use a white American male and you're a feminist? And what about Eastern philosophies and stuff? And I think it's kind of funny though, because lots of people in China, yeah. use him and love him and yeah, yeah, use yeah. his work and have integrated it I with... I can see why you're so enthusiastic <laughs> about it. But I, I just want one final thing. You said it kind of winds you up when people talk about Dewey and get him wrong. I mean, if there's one thing, one fallacy you can correct, what would it be? His association with bad progressive education, like that idea, like teachers do, you know, they say, I, every teacher thinks they do inquiry-based learning and, and, and it's dewy and then you look at what they're doing and it's like I gave them a project sheet and then I ignore them <laughs> for an hour and a half and I was like, oh, poor Dewey. Like the things that, you know, he'd be mortified to have been associated with this and it's like that's not even what, it's not even an inquiry, you know, probably they just go on to the library and copied stuff from a book, you know. It's the practices that are associated with him yeah, and nothing to yeah. do with him, which really damaged his reputation, I think, quite a, quite a lot. So read the primary texts. Yeah. <laughs> but it's clearly a thinker that everyone working in education needs to take really seriously. So thanks ever so much, Jennifer, for taking the time to give us this introduction.